Hey everyone, this episode of the Second Pine Podcast is brought to you by It's Just Soap. Many store-bought body washes and soap bars are made with toxic ingredients that are harmful to your skin. Soap should be healthy for your body, leaving you feeling clean, hydrated, and moisturized. It's Just Soap is made of natural ingredients, giving you a luxurious lather for the best shower experience. Every shower should feel this good. Go to itsjustsoap.com. That's itsjustsoap.com. Leave off that A for additives. And use the code STAYHOMEHUSBAND for 15% off your first purchase. Before we jump into the podcast, we just want to ask you for a bit of help as we try to extend our reach. The easiest step is to simply subscribe or follow the second pint on whatever podcatcher you prefer. Apple, Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts. We're on all of them. A rating and review would take an extra minute, but would help even more. Finally, if you have a second pint drinking, scarf wearing, singing, wake up early to watch weekend soccer friend, tell them to check out this podcast too. Welcome to the second pint podcast. I am Sean Melia and I am joined by my comrade, Both. Buongiorno, Both. Yeah, comrade and Buongiorno don't... Do they go together? They don't. (laughs) Not Um, even close. (laughs) But it kind of works because we are in Italy. We are in Italy. Um, Yes, we're back. And then comrade for me seems kind of like like what a West German would say to to somebody else. Yeah. Yep. And I I think that could kind of, I don't know, be be fitting for our topics today. I I blended the host country and the champion country. From the mm-hmm. 1980 Euros, which is what we will be talking about uh, during today's podcast. If you didn't listen to our first one, Both and I did a, would we call it a sprint through the first five ever Euros? Yeah. I think we call it a yeah. sprint. We did one episode and we just, very brief little pieces on each one um, because they were small events for the most part. And we just didn't want to be belabored in talking about each one. And we uh, we thought we'd do five. And now we're going to kind of pick our way through from 1980 up to 2016 as the Euros approach. It's uh, the middle of May right now. So we're, we're about, what, three or four, three, four weeks away from June 11th. So um, just to whet people's appetites. And today we are in 1980. Neither of us were alive. Um, I was three years away from being born so far not even an apple in my my parents eyes um when what are you when were you born both uh you're 80 up there man. are you at 88 no 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 I'm, I'm a 91 oh okay but that scrolly thing is you know when you put your age into some some, some kind of like <laughs> yep it gets longer and longer i'm like oh man this is this is not good <laughs> well I, I realized uh 2021 when you get your ID checked, you know, people at when you're buying alcohol or maybe go into a bar as uh, things start to open up, if the, the person checking your ID, as as soon as there's a one in the year you were born, like if you've got a 19, 1990 anything, 1980 anything, you're automatically older than 21 because you've got to be a 2000 birthday. That's the cutoff oh. now. Oh my God. Which is crazy. So I did not think of it that way. At yeah. All. It's like the easiest year for any bouncer just to quickly look at a ID and know if the person is of age or not. 
Is uh, that is that why it's, it's getting quicker and quicker to tell if like if my ID is real or not? That might be the case just this year. Okay. Um, you know, just because the cutoff is so is so stark, I would I would imagine. I mean, I'm just old as hell, so I rarely get ID'd anymore. Right. Um, maybe a little bit more when you show up with a mask on, but yep, they look very quickly at mine. It's a cursory glance, just almost like they're <laughs> they're required to do it because they're on camera. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't think I, I got carded last night. I I went to a spot. And I only like took out my card in like just kind of like anticipating, and she was just like, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll take that." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, guess, I guess so. Yep. Um, all right, let's jump in and talk about Euro nineteen eighty. We have a, a a plethora of topics that we've kind of come up with. Some of them uh, offer a bunch of stuff to kind of sift through, and some of them we will go through them rather quickly. Um, but just the nuts and bolts. Like I said, the host of the Euro 1980 was Italy. You did a phenomenal job digging up some uh, some mascot imagery here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you try to describe what's going on here. Uh, yeah, I was hoping you could try to describe. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. It, um, it's scary. It's creepy. Like if you saw that at night, it wouldn't be here. I, I zoomed into 200% on my notes. Um, okay, it's a. Uh, it looks like unfinished, unfinished like like wood shop wood put together in a figure form, and then like a, a weird shaped head. Um, so he looks like a like like a wooden Lego. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it with kind of a triangular head. Right, triangular head and like and like a long Italian colored uh, nose. So this is, this is Pinocchio. Um, it's. And Pinocchio was wearing like a like what's that paper boat hat that kids used to make? <laughs> the paper right? boat hat, yeah, like a a white sailor's cap kind of, um, right. or like a navy one of those kind of like navy cadet hats that you might see on folks um, maybe serving in the military too. Yeah, um, and and then it's just yeah, he's a smiling boy and he has a long nose. You know, Pinocchio, the, the boy who told lies. Um. And Which, he's just like walking, smiling with a soccer ball, like a generic, you know, hexagon, black and white soccer ball. Yeah, it's um, um, uh, it's not something I would want on my shelf in my in my bedroom if I was a kid, because no. I'd be afraid I'd be afraid it was going to come out at night, or an adult, <laughs> or or just now as a grown up. Yeah, if I, in my house I, right now, I'm, I, I'm 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 leaving the house. Yeah, it's got some Elf on a Shelf vibes a little bit. It kind of looks yeah. a, little, a little bit like that. Uh, yeah, so this is also the first year I think it was called the Euros. Is that right? It was... It was. Um, this, yeah, this is a first for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 1980, we're in Italy. We've got Pinocchio as our mascot. Um, just to kind of a little bit of maybe context to what's going on in in soccer right now, 1980 was some, some of these years, I think in the, in the, in the first pod, there was some, you know, conflict, a little bit of, of that type of historical context, but 1980 did not strike. It didn't kind of, it didn't come up as much in my reading. Um, but I did find a, just a little piece from wiki.com here just for soccer wise context. 
Quote, the only bright spots were the emergence of a new generation of talented German stars, such as Bernd Schuster, Hans-Peter Briegel, Horst uh, Hrubich, Hansi Mueller, and Karl Heinz Rummenigge, and the inspirational performance of Belgium around rising stars such as Jan Kuhlmans, Eric Gerritz, Jean-Marie Pfaff, and Erwin Vanderberg. So that's the... At least for me, that was kind of the the historical context of what happened, who was pulled out, and we'll we'll definitely talk about some of those names again. But no real kind of backdrop of conflict, um, even you know, Cold War still going on and all that kind of stuff. But there's just it, it was not as much. There was no teams refusing to play each other because of political grievances. Um, like there were in the earlier tournaments. I don't know if you have any any extra stuff for uh, for that piece of it. Um, not much because I, I I've actually found that the same quote, and I also went to like the the Euro site in some of my research. So the actual UEFA sponsored UEFA run um, Euros, you know, comp site. Yeah. You know, they tell a history where. Uh, this tournament was actually like more glamorous than, than it might have had that it might have been. <laughs> well, it's, it's state run media, you know, they've got to, they've got to try to pump up every tournament. So, so they say the success of the, of the 76 European championship fed the clamor for more places at the final tournament in 1980. And it's like, as if like, they're just like riding this like hot ticket and there was their amazing decision to, to open it up to more, more finals, um, teams. Yep. But like it, you know. So I, I kind of got like a, a mixed message of was this a good tournament or like was it a tournament that fans were still kind of learning about what this Euro thing is? Yeah. Well, you know, in the in our first pod, you used the comparison to a, an infant into a toddler. Uh, so is this just the parent giving themselves credit for the fact that their toddler is maybe walking a month earlier than developmentally? typical yeah you know or they're bragging they're bragging about their kid being in the 95th percentile in height it's like okay yeah exactly or it's like (laughs) like my son just won the state championship for the under 10s (laughs) right yeah so they're definitely trying to i think 1980 does have at least a little bit of significance with regards to the fact that we did go from four teams qualifying for the final um, to now eight teams. So, you know, they double the size of the actual teams traveling to a country, playing more games. Um, I think the the structure of it was still flawed a little bit, and we can talk about that. But it was a big deal that they added a couple teams, grew, grew out the tournament a little bit, and, um, and went from four to eight. So the winner and the final score, West Germany makes their third straight Euro final. And they beat a very surprising Belgian team, two to one, in what what was a pretty exciting game. Um, and I think people did not think it, w- it would have been, but West Germany scores in the final couple minutes uh, to win their second Euro in three tries. Um, they lost in seventy six to, to Czechoslovakia. Um, yeah, so that's the winner in the score, and the favorite to win. Both, I'll let you take this one. 
Yeah, uh, we found we found I think the same source here in our in our research and notes. Um, England was favored to win, um, and it's kind of like this hype that that seems to always exist about about England national teams that they're like going to be this is the year it's going to be us to to win it, and it's like. It's part of it's valid because like there are names that that come up. It's like oh wow okay yeah I can see how you're, you're confident in it and that's, that's like a theme that kind of transcends from or moves from 1980, which I'll, I'll get into in a second, into like the the team with you know Skulls, Beckham, Ferdinand, Lampard, Gerrard, and then the the team now Kane, Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford. Um, so it, it reminded me a little bit of that. Um, when I read this article, and it talked about how uh, England was just this hot, hot ticket team that that like ran through um, their qualifying rounds. They they ran the table in the qualifying rounds. Granted, they played like it was like what Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Denmark. Um, so it wasn't like it was tough competition. But after the you know just getting through it confidently. Um, there's more hype about the players around it. So like Kevin Keegan, which is, you know, to your point, the first name that I like really recognize from past pods and just kind of like, that's just what you hear when you watch a lot of English soccer. Yeah. Um, you know, Peter Shilton was a name, was a name that I, I oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm beginning to come to terms with who was around in this era. Um, and I watched the, I watched some of the games on YouTube. It's crazy how much like, you know, four years, eight years uh, makes a difference when um, in like what is being, you know, what what's available for you to watch. But um, yeah, like watching England play, it's like oh, okay, they're they're actually kind of like balling now. There is a a play I think where like Kevin Keegan dummies the ball behind him, and like that's something like that you didn't really see at all. So they're 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 this like hot flashy team anyway, and then. The story I picked up was the manager sends like like 19 players or three players to go play in in Australia uh, before the tournament. Before that, there was like a couple of questionable decisions regarding um, players and where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, so he, it's funny because he, he he says football's a simple game. You don't have to complicate it, right? Like like that. That's his mantra. Yeah. But the things he does leading up to the tournament, he actually just goes against that and makes it really d- difficult for England to do anything like gain traction, like build chemistry, like build momentum. Um, yeah, I don't, there was they went to Australia and then they went into something else too that really just didn't help their cause. Yeah, they 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 were definitely loaded with talent and guys who had success at the club level. But there were as uh, there's a great 442.com uh, piece about the the English teams um, lead up to the tournament. They're qualifying, they're friendlies that they played, and there were certainly some some warning signs. They lost to Wales 4-1 in a friendly. Um, they I think they lost to Argentina as well, uh, which was when we uh, no they they lost. Who did they beat? They beat Spain, and they beat Argentina. They lost to Wales. Um, so just like losing four one to Wales, they they spent a day at the at 
Downing Street, which is where the prime minister lives and like met Margaret Thatcher. And there's a story about her taking one of the players on like a tour of the whole building. And they're just kind of getting wined and dined and traveling around the world. And some of the guys who went to Australia didn't know they were going to be on or off the squad. And I think some of them found out before they got on the plane to fly back to England. Um, so they had this squad flying back from Australia. Some of them were delighted to be named to the Euro team and some of them were, were not named to it. And they're all in the same flight back home. It's like very strange circumstances. So I, I, I always think of England as the New York Knicks of soccer. Um, or, the Knicks are the, you know, English of of basketball, but huge media presence, always just an incredibly uh, high expectation, no matter how much they're actually any good. Um, that doesn't matter. It's just because the media can can toss up whatever they want and say whatever they want. Uh, New York media just loves to put the Knicks on a pedestal. Um, and, the, you know, the Knicks are pretty good this year. And it's the same, you know, it's, it's, it's happening again. They've only won, you know, the Knicks won championships in 70 and 72. England has won one World Cup in 1966, for Christ's sake. And um, they just like, those two different teams are still like, are still so focused on those victories, which happened almost 60 years ago now. So I think of them as the Knicks. Um, All right. We'll, we'll definitely kind of circle back to England again as we get further in. Uh, the Golden Boot winner was Klaus Olofs, who was a West German player. The third straight West German player to win the Golden Boot. Uh, Jared Muller won it in 72. Dieter Muller won it in 76. Olofs scored all three goals in his, in the, I think it was the first game of the tournament. Uh, scored a hat trick and no one else scored three over the course of the whole time. And our buddy Kevin Keegan scored seven goals over the course of qualifying, which... Um, does not win him a golden boot, but it's at least worth mentioning that he scored a bunch of goals um, in the lead-up. Uh, group of death. There's only two groups because the structure of the event was four teams in two groups or eight teams in two groups of four. The winner of the group just went straight to the finals, which is insane. Um, but in my mind, the group of death is West Germany the Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, and Greece. Um, you've got finalists in there. You've got champions in there, as opposed to the Belgium, Spain, Italy, England group. Um, Italy is the host, kind of reeling off of a, uh, a little bit of a, I think they, I can't remember the name of the, it's in my notes somewhere or in your notes somewhere. They just come off a cheating scandal again and yeah. and now they're hosting an event, but in my mind, the group of death is West Germany, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, and Greece. Sean, I I have um I have here like so I went and looked at like their their qualifying groups. Um, because yeah. for me, I'm still like wrapping my hands around like the the entire structure of it. Like so, like right now, you know, I I know how qualifying works and I, I know how the group stages work, um, and and know how knockout rounds work. Um, but like but like they call it the the finals they call this tournament the european championship finals for me finals was always like that that one game at the end of the tournament mm. um, some people call the but, world cup finals the, the like final, that tur- right. that tournament is the world cup finals because it's a, it's been going on for 2 years and right. this is the finals of it 
Yeah, I so I I just for me that like helped me kind of I don't know look at the, the qualifying rounds and the group of death at the qualifying rounds is interesting to look at. Like you got like Poland, Netherlands, East Germany, Switzerland, Iceland in one group. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, that's a at the five-team group. Yep. So some of these groups are playing more games than others. Yeah. So like some groups, so like Spain, Yugoslavia, Romania play six games, whereas the, the team with five teams in that group plays eight. Yep. There's six games, six games. So I don't know. I think going eight games, you know, toe-to-toe, like with like a, a Portugal, Austria, Belgium, or like East Germany, Netherlands could be worth mentioning for honorable mention for a group of death. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So you, you went back to the qualifiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it from what I saw, it also looks like they're, they're far more um, like regional group. They're grouped by region more than they are now where you can, you can end up with a team like Ireland having to travel to Serbia. Um, Right. They're not grouped by like Ireland and North and Northern Ireland and Scotland and England are not a f- group of four just because they're close to each other. Um, it's more based on, I think, probably world ranking and they kind of create little pockets of teams. So you don't end up with you know, Spain and France in the same group just because they're next to each other on the continent. So, yeah, that's a that's a fair point. There's there's all these crazy big groups that, uh, that they have to boil it down to these eight. Um, and even, even that point, like Italy, we just got to show up and play. They didn't have to qualify. Right. They were just the hosts. And so there's only seven teams who could, who could qualify from those, from those groups too, which I guess if they didn't have a host qualify, they could, they could have boiled down those groups and had eight qualifying groups. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because the way it was the way the the way the pre-tournament or the qualifying worked was the top team from each group just got to go to got to go to the Euro finals. Right. So if you have an eighth group, you can kind of you can stretch out that those groups a little bit more and maybe have teams playing fewer games and in some smaller groups. Um, But because the host got the automatic bid, they only were allowed seven groups instead of eight. Um. Yeah, and then. I think just as far as the group of or pre-tournament storylines, um, I think Italy is the big one. So they get placed in the easier of the two groups. And they also had 33 players due in due to go to trial in Rome because of fraud, um, having accepted money to fix results of two games. So Italy, as it always is, tends to be is in a little bit of, uh, has a little bit of a scandal in the background and they've got a bunch of players who could potentially be on the team in trial as a, yeah. as a priest, as a pre attorney storyline. I, so I read part of that too. And, and like, I, I felt like there was some kind of narrative or subtext that was like kind of alluding to the low numbers of, of fans and kind of like the like almost um, dampened hype is that this was all kind of going on in the host in the host's country. Yep. Um, so I, I don't know if, if like 
if that was it or why like the whole vibe of it was a little bit off or I don't know, but um, it was it was called the Toro Ten or something, Sean, like the yeah, Torero. Tor- Tor- Torrento, Tor- Torrentino. Um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna stop. Yeah, we're we're just butchering it now. Uh, I'll look it up. Um, yeah, I think th- you mentioned the attendance. Twenty four thousand people. Uh, it's the T O T O N E R O. So, Totonero match fixing scandal, um, which is what we're talking about here. Um, one of the many match fixing scandals in Italy. Right. Uh, and only twenty four thousand people showed up in average to the matches, and I think that was that number was even made higher just because the Italian games were well attended, but every other match was not. Mm-hmm. Um, so tw- I mean, if you think about twenty four thousand people going to a a Euro event now, it would be because you're only allowed, uh, you know, half 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 the people could be in there because of COVID. Right. You'd never see twenty only twenty four thousand people in a stadium watching a, a Euros game now. So, and you know, we've talked a little when we were covering Italy, we were talking about the low attendance in stadiums. Um, like Milan Stadium, they do not fill those stadiums, even even for just big games, club games. Um, out of out of just like random football soccer curiosity, um, I I looked up like Craven Cottage. Yeah. So I as 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 low as twenty four twenty five thousand fans is at a stadium. Or in, you know, for for a Euro game, I think Craven Cottage hosting a game for a Euro for like an England Euro would be insane. Oh, it would be awesome. I think it, like they literally blow the roof off off the house. Yeah, but but they would but they would never do it because they they know they could find a place twice as big and make twice as much money. Right, but Which like is... I think if you were pure atmosphere and you did like. An England game, you know, at Craven Cottage, twenty five thousand you know, fans. I could crush it. Yeah, it would be amazing, and it, it's it's one of those places you could have a really important qualifier. Yeah, you know, if England England in a World Cup qualifier, let's just put the, let's put them in Craven Cottage. Um, where's another? What's another kind of small? Crystal Palace, I think, is another has another small place. Yeah, just pick up. That's what the U.S. did with um, the Columbus Stadium in Ohio. Right. They just were like, let's just play in a small soccer-focused stadium and and get just pack it out and and make well, it make it great. They always bring Mexico to Denver to play. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's uh, equal footing then because they got to go to Mexico City. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But no, yeah. Sorry, I, I was thinking about that. Like. Uh, a Euro seems small, twenty five thousand fans, you know, for a final for for a match. But like, I think there's still a bit of romance if you pack twenty five thousand fans into the into like the right stadium. Oh, for sure, for sure. But that's uh, I don't think that was the case in, in in this. I think they they had bigger stadiums that just weren't being full or filled. Um. Yeah. All right, let's go to gear and stats. Do it. This is your stuff. I, yeah, your um, side of the note, my side of the notes is is yeah. uh, is is clear and open. And you wanted you you love 
when we started talking about like what do we want to do, you were like, I want to talk about quickly hit on what kind of ball they were using, cleats. And I said, oh, that's great. And I figured I was like, 1980, there can't be that much. And man, did you prove me wrong? So I'm going to step aside and give you the floor here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so like for me, I, I tell my friends, I tell my family that I live my life according to like the big football tournaments that are happening in that, in that time. Like I know where I was world cup 2010. I know where I was world cup 20, you know, uh, 2014 world cup 2002. Like I know where I was. Um, so for me, like these like life milestones or life checkpoints on like on the timeline is, is, uh, always been of interest to me. Um, and it's like, I don't know, like just like soccer nerd, uh, subculture. Um, the ball, the ball always interests me. It's like what ball was being used and, and how, how did that ball define the error of the time? Like you think of like the, the Nike Geo Merlin ball that was like famous when Arsenal was like, you know, Thierry Henry and Bergkamp. Mm. Uh, you think of like the O2 Fever Nova ball in, in the World Cup in Korea, Japan and how it was like the first gold ball um, and a ball that didn't look like, you know, like the, the traditional black and white. Um, the Jabulani from South Africa, the Brazuka from Brazil, like these, these things are just, for me, this is like as important as the actual um, tournament <laughs> itself. It just is. Like, the, the, the ball used in Russia was sad. I am so sorry if that ends up hurting me. But the Russian ball was, just, was, not, was not a good ball for, for the World Cup um, compared to other, other great, great, you know, I mean, the Champions League ball is amazing. Okay. So, so for you, what, what makes, what makes a great ball as you're, as you're rating them? Um, it's gotta have character. It's it's gotta, it's gotta have some kind of, um, uh, ode to the host country. Okay. Host city. Um, I thought like like the Jabulani final form having like the colors of you know like a tournament celebrated in South Africa, um, a tournament celebrated in Africa as a continent as a whole like that was a big t- tournament um, to be an essay. Yeah. Uh, the Brazuka had all the colors of Brazil, um, kind of like this festive, you know, this festive um, ball that like said yeah like this is a really colorful and vibrant community that we're putting the World Cup in like we're putting it in one of the one of the homes of, of, of the sport. So it has to have some kind of history like that. Um, obviously like, uh, it's gotta be reliable. So talk about like a ball finding true flight. There's all these thermal bonding now, like the, every ball will get like this own promo ad of like how incredible it is. They'll show like some striker kicking it really hard and like how it keeps shape and it flies through the air and all that. So that's big too. Um, and then lastly, like just, it has to look somewhat like the original soccer ball, um, hexagon shape, black and white, but still have like a, its own little bit of character. Like I love the, the Copa Mundial because it's um, just a black and white boot that I'll get into later. And then anything else that uses that same thing but in its own style is is just a cool evolution to that. Like, I don't like the like multicolored, you know, bright ball. Yeah, I don't like the, like crazy patterns it's just like, give me a, a ball that you know is predominantly white or like a like a solid color and then and play 
Yep, and that pays homage oh. to the place that it's being played in. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the ball type uh, Euro in the '80s was kind of like they they didn't really latch onto the whole marketing piece of that yet. I wasn't born yet, so they didn't, they didn't have a need to, <laughs> to change the ball up. Um, so it was the same ball used at the 78 World Cup, uh, the, the Tangle River Plate. Um, if I'm bringing it up on the on the screen here, it's just like um, it says Tango on it. Adidas, the, the old school, like three leaf uh, stripe Adidas logo, black and white. It looks plastic almost. Um, it's called, yeah, the Tango River Plate. Uh, it reminds me of River Plate. Um, Argent from Argentina, red, uh, red text, black, um, black accent, white, white ball. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it references the culture of the hosting nation, Argentina back in the day. Um, this ball was the last of, uh, the leather balls used. So after that, they kind of moved into a, a different material, um, to help with, you know, um, uh, water getting into the ball to help with flight to help with um just anything that makes a ball the ball easier more consistent consistent to play with in, in the match right conditions um yeah that's that that's it's a good ball it's it's a ball that like you'll you'll come to kind of see more when you like watch like maradona play and watch like, like the other like greats you you saw growing up um, so it's like kind of like the first stage of this like proverbial baby looking like a baby. Yeah. Well, yeah. just they didn't care about the ball at all, and it was it was pretty sad. Yep. Um, moving on to the boots. boots. So this was pretty cool. Um, looking it up, like I actually didn't know when when the Copa started out. Um, the Copa Mundial, as I said before, is a classic boot. Like zero fucks. <laughs> no around. It's just it's it's just a boot. It's a black boot, white stripes, and tongue. Um, and uh, yeah, like a year before the eighty World Cup, so seventy nine, um, Adidas made kind of they broke ground and they um, introduced the Copa Mundial. So this is a, a new boot. Um, nowadays, you see a tournament, you know, come up and Adidas and Nike will race to drop some new cleat that will be featured in the tournament. And they have like a Neymar wear it, a Ronaldo wear it, and everybody wants to buy that cleat. Um, that culture didn't really exist just yet, but there was a lot of hype about this Copa Mundial. I have a pair myself. It's I keep it near my bed. Um, it's, just a, it's just a great boot. If, if if you're any kind of junkie, like for you know soccer subculture, buying a pair of Copa Mundials like it, it connects you to your heritage. Um, so anyway. Uh, the Copa Mundial um, was released. So was the Puma King. The Puma King is Puma's answer to the, P the Copa Mundial. It's a black boot again, and that Puma swoosh is is white. That was made famous by like Pele. Mm -hmm. right? um, the Copa is an Adidas brand. It's like that's like linked to a lot of European teams. Like a lot of European players will will be known for wearing this, like Beckenbauer or like um, who else comes to mind? Sean, a, a Copa Mundial. Is it Klinsman? Oh, it's, it's a lot of, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like those 80, it's like 80s, early 90s. There's a lot closer. Where's Copa Mundial? Yeah. Modern day striker who wore it. Like, that was kind of crazy. I mean, I love Marcus Rashford right now. I was watching a United game and he was the only guy in the field just wearing black cleats, which I just made me love him even more. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm old school like that. Yeah. Like, 
black food. You know, I even sent I even sent a pair of two pairs of cleats to Liverpool, England to get blacked out and then and then mail it back to me. <laughs> um, like it's just I yeah, I I step on people that have uh, different colored boots. Um, but yeah, there was just kind of this 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 boom of cleats that happened in in and around this tournament. Um, it, it, you know, it it plays back to our our theme of global football, global soccer, like becoming more of a thing. Uh, international football soccer becoming more of a thing and kind of like catching some steam and some momentum. You know, you're seeing. Um, I I think for for me at least in, in subtle ways the globalization or the beginning of it um, around this tournament. Uh, Theodore releases a, a pair of cleats in 77. Kelmi, Umbro, Lotto um, released boots in the 80s. Um, they became, yeah, it, it became more like, I don't know, like we want a, a lighter boot. We want a boot that is more dynamic um, according to how the game is developing too. So, yeah, uh, the gear for me is important because I, I think it, it, it highlights what's going on and where the game is at, you know, in that era, in that time period. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, um, I also wonder as you were kind of naming off Umbro and Lotto, those companies also, you know, made jerseys. Right. And, and so they start, I, I would, I wonder if part of their, entry into cleats was well we're making the jerseys we're making the shorts and the socks it would be great if we could get a whole team in everything that we make and not right. have not have a an umbro team wearing uh puma kings right right um get the all the way through because there were no players who were i would imagine i don't there were no players signed up to wear specific cleats there were there you know there were no shoe deals back in 1980 i no, I don't know of. Um, so yeah, I was a I was a Puma King guy in high school. That's what I and uh, and Predators. Brother, Those were my your two. Your pair of of Predators. My brother did. Yeah, yeah. He was like he was my uh, my coach counselor one one summer, and in, and then we we met in high school, uh, and he 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 bequeathed me as like part of his like leaving of the school. When he left as a senior, he said, "Here you go. Here are these," and he called them dead squirrels, um, because when they when they got waterlogged, they they were so heavy, and he just called them dead squirrels. <laughs> yeah, some of those predators were were uh, they were heavy cleats, but they were great. Yeah. I, I loved some of those some of those renditions that they had. Um, that's a that's great. I'm excited for '84 and '88 when you when you dive into cleats too. You ha- you have a thing in your notes here about just the the actual kind of physical cleat on these boots and uh, yeah. and like yeah, just the it, surface it's it, again like getting back to like the the technology and development of of the gear they use or the equipment they use um it, you know, it just shows how the game is moving forward um now like you have people starting to kind of get feedback and give feedback on like no like i i want customized uh sole plate so the bottom of the, of the boot of the cleat um to match what i'm playing on so players are becoming more like aware of like what they need to play um, yeah. on the field so like you know surfaces was 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 something that started to, to play a factor in, in how something was designed um before cleats were not like 
quote bite into the turf. So like they they were kind of these molded or rounds. Um, I'm imagining like just like shoving like what do you call those things? Um, like a, a screw onto the bottom of your cleat. So it's it's too round to actually like get into the turf and give you traction. Yep. Um. So yeah, new designs like smaller rubbers. Uh, you know the the Copa was like um made into a way that like would would take into account how a player wants to move on the field right um and you know and then also um it kind of it, it came pretty close to like turf cleats um at one point because the like you know in england you're, you're playing on you're playing on like wet like soggy pitches it's like you gotta wear metal studs um in in different different countries the 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 climate the weather it, it changes how, how the field plays um so yeah players went in and, and asked to to get their their boots uh, made differently um i think looking back at the history of the boots you know the, the 70s had a lot of metal studs now you're seeing like the 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 birth or the kind of the momentum gaining of like a rubber stud yep uh, yeah so again like i have a pair of soft grounds right here they're they're metal. They're great, um, and I have a pair of, of firm grounds, um, and I can differentiate between soft ground, firm grounds, turf, um, and I have all three. Um, but that wasn't a thing until this tournament, until the 1980s. Yeah. So oh, like, that's interesting. You know, know what you want um, for what you're playing on. Yep. Uh, uniforms. Not a lot stands out about these uniforms, other than they probably match what you just said about the boots and maybe even the soccer ball just extraordinarily simplistic uh which i which i personally like um so you've got like the netherlands wearing their classic orange uh with a like their crest is awesome because it's just that i don't know if it's a griffin or a lion on a on the netherlands um kind of crest but it's not even a crest it's just it's just that animal on their on their chest belgium red with with the kind of yellow stripes on the shoulder west germany and just your tip your classic kind of like white and black um it, it, i just really liked all of just the simplicity of it no obviously you know these are not getting sold mm -hmm. um they're just like everything else we're talking about there's there's not a market for this stuff yet as far as people wanting to buy them uh, and wear them around. So the design was simple and easy and uh, probably made just to look good, at least on TV a little bit. And the TVs were were not great that any sort of patterns on shirts would have been super distracting, <laughs> like stripes, checkers, uh, anything like that on a 1980s TV as they're starting to show this stuff on television. Um I would imagine would be distracting. So, so a lot of solid colors. They all looked pretty good. Uh, number of cards. I managed to find this. Uh, Sean, before you go into that. Yeah. I, I picked up uh, a fun fact that back in the day when, when color TV and like black and white TV was um, still kind of a, a thing, like there, there weren't, not every household had color TV. Um, around this time so there was an agreement that one team had to be distinctly white on the screen and one team had to be distinctly a, a dark color on the screen so oh it, interesting so i think part of the uh of 
the designs being so simple is it, it was like hey we have to make sure that that like we can be seen um for as many people as possible yeah because i remember even in 2002 that was a thing where brazil and germany had to agree to which um which uh colors that they were wearing because they one wanted to wear yellow one wanted to wear white um and that was a little bit of a controversy because they were like oh how will this come up on a, on a black and white screen yeah not good <laughs> Yeah, so jerseys were, I think, also um, beginning to, to commentate on TV and broadcasting, too. Yep. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, a lot of white and a lot of red and orange and whatever just solid color a, a team wanted to wear uh, in contrast to whatever the, I guess, whatever the team in, in white was wearing. But no patterns. Very simple. I liked it. Um, so number of cards. So flashscore.com, which I had never found before, is a treasure trove of information. Um, had every score from every qualifying match from the 1980s uh, Euros. And I just went through and I clicked on every game from the actual main tournament between those uh, eight qualifying teams and then the, semifi- and then the final because there were not even semifinals. And I only found seven cards were given out. Um, all yellow, so seven cards in 27 games is a pretty feels like a low number to me. I don't know. I don't know if right. That's like one card almost every four matches. Yeah. Um. I I I was gonna bring up this this guy's name this guy's name later on in the pod, um, in a different section, but I'll bring it up now because like so seven cards in what 27 matches you said? Yeah. Okay, so that that sounds low, um, but I guess by coincidence, I, I looked up one of the referees of the tournaments. This guy's name is Charles Cor- Charles Corver. He's a Dutch football referee, right? Here's here's a quick story that like I don't know it gives that number a little bit of a of a side eye. He refereed the 1982 World Cup semifinal between Germany and France in Seville, Spain, when he deemed goalkeeper Harald Schumacher's collision with Patrick Battison not to be a foul. Baddison remained unconscious for over a minute and sustained the loss of three teeth and a damaged vertebrae. So, like, okay, only seven cards, but who who are calling these games and what kind of tackles are being thrown? Yeah, and so he he it's not even that wasn't a question of a card or not. That was a question of a foul or not of, of a guy's safety. I mean, he damaged his vertebrae. And yeah, lost three teeth. I, I can't think of any benign or holistically good tackle that would have a guy. A guy's vertebrae be damaged and, and, and losing PT. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. So I, yeah, I would imagine cards were given out for the very worst, and yeah, with sure. only seven cards. So yeah, only seven cards given out. Um, I mean, we've talked and joked about just the the nature of tackles and and soccer in the in the middle of the field at this at this time frame. And uh, it it can be it was pretty aggressive, and the fields were terrible, uh, and the refs clearly were not doling out cards to at least giving out cards to keep people safe. Um, so I I didn't read about any big injuries from 1980, but um, I would imagine I would imagine seven cards did not keep players in check at least. No, <laughs> it was not a fear, um, and also it doesn't impact. If, if if you're not giving out cards, they also don't accumulate on certain players. So, you know, every player is playing in every in every game, and they're not at risk of 
getting a third card and missing a game if there's only seven given out. I, I think even as I was clicking through, no one player earned more than one card. So it was just like seven cards to seven different players um, overall. Uh, goals. 27 yeah. goals were scored. I'm sorry. So seven set. There were seven cards given out in the 14 games. I misspoke. There were 27 goals scored in the 14 games as well. Okay. So one card every two games, not every four games. My apologies. Um, so 27 goals were scored in the 14 games, which is just a shade under two goals a game. Snooze fast, Boff. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. So, like, again, thinking about the like the ball that a tournament uses for for their uh, for their you know 30 days of, of football glory, like it's designed the ball designed to, to move true for the for the striker. They they want goals. So, like a ball that moves and wiggles in the air and makes it a little bit hard for keepers. Like they kind of want that. Yep. Um, it's because you want you want to see goals. You want to see you know three goals a game, four goals a game, like a, you know these like groups of death because like oh yeah, this is gonna be an absolute just like slugfest. Um, but I don't know. I mean, what two goals a game after the qualifying rounds produce three goals a game? It, it, it hurts. Yeah, and even if I mean, I was looking through some of the qualifying scores as well because. Uh, flashscore.com has those and you know you've got games Germany beat Malta 8 nothing um right. uh, there's true. a 7 you know 4 Czechoslovakia beat Sweden 4-1 so those like those games you're going to get scores that just that skew the number cuz I think you did find there were what 327 goals scored in 108 qualifying round matches and that's just over 3 but it's all skewed by some just blowout games. If you look at the, so I'm going to, so how many goals do you think makes, like makes a good game? I would think like three and a half for a tournament would be, would be an exciting tournament. Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, cause you want, you want, so what goes into like three goal games is someone going ahead, someone tying it and someone else, like you know, taking the lead, and that that like storyline of either came from behind to win it two one, or you scored first, gave up a goal, had to recover, and you know, find a way to to prove your quality. Like there's all these kind of cool underlying stories of like you know, underdog and and favorite to win and all that. Um, that comes with from like a, a three goal game. You don't really get that in a one goal game or a two goal game. Right. So here are the fourteen. I'm going to read through the 14 scores of the uh, Euros, Euro 1980 quickly. 1 0, 1 0, 1 1, 0 0, 3 2, 3 1, 2 1. That's a little, that's an okay stretch. 1 0, 1 1, 0 0, 2 1, 0 0. And then the final was 2 1. The final was 2 1. It was like what you were just saying. It was the, the final was. Germany led 1-0. Belgium scored a penalty kick to make it 1-1. And then Germany scored in the kind of dying minutes of the game to win 2-1. I would say three goals is perfect, too. You get If it's a 2-0 game, you know, that third goal is always the most important goal of any game. Right? right? Like, that's that's always... Because if you're up 2-0, two, two you give up that third goal and you're up 2-1, suddenly it gets real tough. Because you're, 
you're defending a, a one goal lead. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like three goals is a magic number for, for a, a really interesting, good match between two good teams. And there just weren't enough of those in this. I mean, zero, zero games just, and I, I think the, the structure of the tournament where you have two different groups, I did, a, I, this was kind of part of what I noticed when I was reading too. So if you won the group, you went through to the final mm-hmm. and there was a lot of play in like playing for ties because the points were so immensely important. Whereas now, it, you know, you don't need to win your group to get through. You need to finish either first or second. So there's a little bit more leeway, a little bit more freedom to maybe chase points. Whereas you could you could win your first game and suddenly you're like, we got three points. We only need two more points. Let's just play for two ties. Sean, I think I think the Euro 80 was still working under... 2-1. Uh, uh, yeah, a 2-1 system. Yeah, it was. So I think like there, that might have affected like, hey, like why, why? What's the incentive of getting that extra point when we can make sure that you know we, we secure our, our one now? Exactly. Yeah. Where so like, now it's like three for a win. It's like, oh, okay, like that that separates things. Yep. Yeah. I mean, in you could see it in those first, the fact that the first four games were one nothing, one nothing, one one zero zero. Those teams were just trying really hard not to lose that, not to lose that first match and kind of be out. Right, but no, it doesn't seem like anyone was really chasing a chasing a win. Um, so, anyways, that's that's the story of the goals. Only twenty seven goals in fourteen games between the group and the final and the third place match. Um, let's get to matches. So, we always try to just find maybe the best match, and I found two after just dogging the tournament for for lack of goals. Um, <laughs> the yep. the best match in the group stage was West Germany and the Netherlands. Um, it was three to two. It was kind of a borderline snoozer for a bunch of it as I, I watched the highlights. West Germany led three nothing. Um, Alefs, as I said before, scored a hat trick. Uh, and I think his he was done scoring by the 66th minute. His second and third goals were 60th minute and the 66th minute. It was three nothing. And um, the Netherlands managed to fight back and make it 3-2 with about, I think, six minutes left to make an exciting finish. Um, five goals in the match. If you think about that, that match was the five goals out of the 27 were scored in that one game. Almost a fifth of the goals. And mm-hmm. also just West Germany and Netherlands having that little bit of history between the 72 and 76 tournaments. They didn't get to play in 76, but... The Netherlands were just kind of, they were descending at that point. This was a little bit of a, a final kick um, for this era of player. They obviously won in 88, um, in the 88 Euros. But this 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 era of players was kind of on the outs. And uh, this was, I would, maybe a little bit of a death rattle for them. But they, they couldn't win. But 3-2, to two, it was an exciting game. And then... I don't know if you have any thoughts on that on that match, Both, or or watched any of it or saw any of it. Um, yeah, no, the for me, I, I just I just mentioned that um uh the the game winning goal in the final reminds me of, of like the, the United treble. Yeah. Um, you know, just like corner kick, uh it's like dying minutes. Um yeah. 
So, no, that's it for me. I didn't get into the best match. I, again, like, like I said, I watched the the highlights and the goals from other games. And, you know, I think, like, it's really cool. Just I think if you have, like, 20 minutes where you're just kind of in the mood to enjoy a a drink and just watch some watch some old-school clips, like Spain-England um, in the qualifying rounds, you know, France's, like, whole run through the tournament, like, interesting stuff. Um, but, yeah, that's yeah. It for me. Yeah, the final... Was a two-one win, and West Germany scored in the 88th minute. And I saw your note about the Man United Bayern Munich match, and I pictured it in my mind because it's one of the happiest sports moments um, of my life when United won that game. I remember, still remember running through my house, but I went and watched it on YouTube just to, just to, just to get some goosebumps. And it was very similar. Solskjaer, uh, kind of like got his foot on it, so it was headed by I can't remember who headed it. Maybe it was Sheringham who headed it kind of to the back post and then uh, Solskjaer kind of just put his foot on it and went up. But it was the line of the corner to where the ball ended up was extremely similar to the goal that was scored in the final um, of the 1980 Euros. But it was scored directly off the head in uh, in the in the finals um, in 1980. But I thank you for just giving me an excuse to go back and watch the those last few minutes because it's it's amazing. Um, most historically relevant match. So when we kind of came up with this, we thought maybe this would be one of those ones where we've got two countries playing each other who, you know, maybe have some some history. Did not really find that in 1980, but you did. I thought what you found was was very interesting and uh, kind of changes what the tournament looks like going forward. So I'll let you um, I'll let you share this one. This was a good find. Yeah, real quick run through. Um, this was uh, this tournament had a third place match, and I don't know about you, Sean. I, if I'm playing that, in that game, I'm, I'm pissed off already. Mm-hmm. Not good times. Yeah, it was so bad. It was so bad that that after the eighty the eighty Euro t- um, tournament, they just scrapped it and just did away with that third place match. So it's, it's you know you have your two semifinals and then the final, uh, nothing else. Um, about the match, like it. Um, you know, I, I don't even know how it got got to a tie, but it ended the tie, and then it was a penalty shootout um, to to decide it. And the process it it took I think it was seventeen attempts. Yep. Um, yeah, seventeen attempts to to finally find a winner. So that's that's each team hitting hitting eight penalties or seven penalties in a row. Um, and at some point, it, it becomes old. Um, I guess I don't know. On one hand, like a good penalty shootout, like has goals, has penalties scored. But on the other hand, it's like it doesn't drag on for too long. Like it, it ends in five, or it ends in six as like a pretty dramatic uh, penalty shootout. Well, it's it's uh, it's amazing that it wasn't just that it went for seventeen, and you know there was a round where both teams missed or they finished the first five tied four four. They literally made every they made every attempt until the last one was missed. Mm-hmm. Which is which is insane. Which would be a, an exciting final, right. right? Like imagine a World Cup final going to the seventeenth kick, and you've got like, you know, the right back having to take the kick because they're going. They're already almost all the way through their team. Um, oh your heart, your your heart is in your mouth. Right. I mean, I'm trying to. I just so that would be exciting. Yeah. But when it's a third, fourth place game, and everyone just wants to go home. Right. Like, what are we doing? Um, right. Yeah. So, um, I, and I thought this was pretty a pretty a bit of dry humor. 
after this match, uh, manager of the Czechoslovakia team felt the results should encourage his team to aim higher in the future. He's basically saying like, hey, remember how much this sucked? Don't yeah. Don't happen again. Defending champs too, Czechoslovakia. After yeah. winning, after winning a penalty kick shootout in '76. Right. Um, um, and then you had another good, uh, uh, like a kind of a tactical point too, as far as historically re- historical relevance. Yeah. Um, really quickly again, because uh, we got a lot of content, um, but this is a, a position called. Uh, so anyway, the the, the libero position, a uh, libero, is like an Italian word, Sean. You know what that kind of means, or what would allude to? Um, uh, like, like freedom. Huh? Freedom. Like liberty, yeah. yeah. So uh, basically, um, here I'll read the quote to kind of describe a little bit of, of who this player was in in modern or in that era's tactics uh, on the field. It was a majestic sight. Go back 30, 40 years and watch the teams defend. The majority of them will feature a type of player that seems to have lost, been lost from the modern game. You'll see an elegant defender, which is like an oxymoron. Uh, <laughs> Tell that to Paolo Maldini. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I think of, like, Calgar uh, Solchek from, from Leicester. Like, this guy looks like, you know, Lord Farquaad is just going to just run through you. Um, but uh, anyway, sitting behind the defensive line, picking up a stray through ball from an attacker. As he effortlessly brings it under his control, he marches forward with it, stepping past other defenders and moving to the midfield zone. From there, he acts as a modern-day deep-lying playmaker, initiating the play and spreading it out to the flanks or playing it forward into a midfield or attack. This is the libero. Yeah. Um, and I was like, maybe, you know, thinking about like how this shape or how this influences team shape going forward to attack, maybe that's kind of explaining why like the games were so dull. It's like you, you've got a back four and then a guy behind the back four. So you have five, you know, you have five defenders. And then when you go forward at the best, so at, at the very least, you have four players and you got to hope that people can transition and join the attack. Yep. But you know what I mean, like like who can do that and counterattack with you know that era's fitness and that era's you know just um, athleticism? It's not as I don't know. It's not conducive to a to a lot of goals. I don't think. Well, and it it I think maybe people would assume the fact that the goalie has now for some teams become that guy who's the extra sweeper. So you take that you take that. Super sweeper who's sitting behind four defenders, which seems insane. And you just, that's the goalie's job. Like that goalie is not just in the box anymore if he's a, a modern day goalie. Um, and then it frees up a, a position where you can take whatever skills a libero had kind of going forward or in midfield. You just, you just take, a, you just find a player who can do that part of it because the goalie can do the first part of it. Um, is maybe is part of this too, but yeah, it's it's incredible to think they just had five guys sitting back there, and one of them was just cleaning up the mess because the other defenders weren't elegant. That's the other that's the other premise of that elegant defender. It's like we need one dude who's elegant because the other four are oafs. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's I, it, it's very possible. That's why there are only uh, less you know less than two goals scored a game. Mm-hmm. Um, biggest shock or disappointment I had just Belgium reaching the final which I think we talked last time and we will talk again in the future about these 
surprise countries having phenomenal success in the Euros. And it happens far more often than it does in the World Cup. And even as the Euros got get bigger, there are still complete surprises. Denmark winning, basically getting in off the waiting list um, in 92, like getting a phone call weeks before the event or and just, you know, they, they have a spot. Or Greece winning, like just these random Czechoslovakia in 76 going through the Netherlands and then beating West Germany. Um, so Belgium reaching the final and, um, and then Italy and England kind of being disappointments. Italy coming in um, just as a host and England as the kind of a hot, a hot favorite. And then, and then the defensive mentality was the other kind of disappointment for me, just which we just talked about. So what do you have as, right. as uh, shocks or disappointments? Um, shocks can be good too. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the biggest shock and disappointment was uh, the fact that, um, well, I, I learned this, the fact that, um, a lot of star players in that era, in that time were not at the tournament. Platini was not there. You know, France didn't make it. Um, and, and, you know, uh, the German team that won it didn't have that, that same vibe and, and fervor uh, of the seventies. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it just wasn't, kind of as star-studded as, as it could have been. Uh, I think the players that didn't play were almost as important as the players that did play. Um, in terms of disappointment more you know, further, is I think that, that scandal, and I have the, the word here now, Totonero uh, scandal, um, dampened a little bit of the, the festivities, and then also just the fans and how you know, they, they weren't in full force at, at many of the matches. Yep. Yeah, I, um, before we hopped on, I just I, we were talking about Platini and the fact that in '84 he shows up and scores nine goals and has two hat tricks. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. Just kind of runs runs the show in '84, and it's a shame that there's so many just good players who miss out on '80. I think partly just because it's a small field, right? Like you got eight teams, yeah. you're gonna lose, you're gonna miss guys, you're not gonna have, especially when you're when your regional qualifiers are just like, if you got six teams and two of them are very good, one of them is only going to make the final, which is yep. a shame. Uh, how about controversies? Um, controversies. I, I think you and I had the same, the same kind of, uh, of vibe. Uh, oh yeah. The hooligans. This, this, this part again <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> Sean, really quickly before you get into your part, like this picture I have on, on the notes here. Yep. It, it reminds me of like, a, a less benign version of that scene when Kieran Trippier hits the free kick um, for England in the World Cup semis. Yeah, and like that that scene where it's like like there's it's like different live you know live watching um, watch parties in England. It's like the the crowd just throwing beer in the air and it's going crazy and like it's like kind of a feel good scene if you're a purist and just like love fandom. Yep. And this one here is just like not it at all. It, it looks like. <laughs> It just looks like, oh man, not good news. A lot of lot of so MPs. It looks like a lot of police presence. Yeah, a lot of St. George crosses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of shirtless men. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what's? Do you want me to get into my my England hooligan story? Or do you want to talk about your uh, your press conference? Uh, no, I, I actually got to bring that up on, on the tab. So let, let's get into the England bit now and give me a chance to catch up here. Okay, pretty great. So 
Of course, 1980, we get some English hooligans. I think we've talked in the past about maybe it was the 1990 World Cup, which was also in Italy, which I, I don't think I knew this story when I was when we were talking about um, 1990 World Cup. But the what were we talking? Oh, we were talking about Sardinia, right? So when we were we were covering a club from Sardinia that in 1990, all of the English games were on Sardinia, which is an island off the coast of Italy, because they just wanted all the English on an island <laughs> for the first three matches. And I wonder if this 1980 instance in Italy might have been the the thing reminding them of like, between 1980, Heysel uh, with Liverpool, and um, was that, who was Liverpool playing at he- in at Heysel? Oh. I can't remember who they were playing. Juventus? Uh, I, I don't want to guess. That. Yeah, I can't remember who it was, but it was a, so Liverpool was involved there, uh, and then you have Hills, the Hillsborough disaster, um, also in, in the '80s. So the '80s was not a great time for for English fandom, and this was kind of another. This was maybe the first moment. Obviously, it's 1980. So four four two, which I mentioned earlier, I would recommend anyone go go through and read it. I'll put I'll put the link in the in the bottom of the show notes. It's a great read. And I have a couple quotes from here, but basically the English fans kind of created a bit of a mess during the Belgium-England game. The game got delayed because the Italian police had to use tear gas on the fans in the stands. So a couple quotes here. So first one, um, quote, the Italian police fired tear gas into the crowd. All of a sudden, for no apparent reason, my eyes started to water, says goalkeeper Ray Clements. A horrible feeling came over me and I couldn't see anything. Then I realized there was a problem behind me. So the tear gas was being used on the fans, but also then drifting onto the field. Um, another lo- another quote here. The result wasn't the main talking point, however. The hooligans were. Quote, we are ashamed of people like this, said a furious Greenwood. We have done everything to create the right impression here. Then these bastards let you down. Um, so Greenwood is the English manager at the time. Um, and then the final quote I have, nor was it the only fashion disaster. We came out in our Admiral tracksuits who were, uh, oh, this is, maybe this is a different piece. Yeah, this is a different piece that I'll, I'll, I'll read later. Um, so the hooligans just kind of, you know, ruin a game, delay a game, create a bit of a problem in the stands. Um, nothing new if you've, read or talked or watched anything around English soccer. It's kind of a, a little bit of a, it's just a, a stamp that they have um, both internationally. And we've talked about their, you know, their, their fan groups across England as well that can stir up trouble during, during club matches and during um, derbies. Uh, and then the, the only other quote I found that I really liked from this piece that has nothing to do with hooliganism uh, was just about about the Italians in contrast to the English around what they wore before their match against each other in the group stage of the Euros. Um, so it's, nor was it the only fashion disaster. Quote, we came out in our admirable, admiral tracksuits, who were among the leading kit makers at the time, says Sans- Sansom. Then the Italians, fantastically suntanned, appeared in these incredible ice blue tracksuits and Ray-Bans. We felt like we were one nothing down already. <laughs> so that that just that's just a great little quote. Um, just contrasting the English with the Italians. Uh, it reminded me of my high school days. Both you and I went to the same high school and played played soccer there at different times. 
um, as yeah. we as we already found out, I'm far older than you are. And um, and uh, there's certain teams you would play, Loomis Chafee being one of them, a uh, boarding school in Connecticut, and they would come out and oh. they'd had this like crazy synchronized warm up with their hoods up. And we were so distracted. It was like, I, 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 we all felt the same way watching them. Like, oh, we're already, it's already one nothing. We're already down right. one nothing. These guys are so organized and, uh, and they look like they're just going to kick our ass. So I thought that was a great quote <laughs> comparing yeah. the English and the Italians. That is great. And I, I love how it's, it's not even, it's not even a, like a, a scary sight to me. Like, <laughs> I know. Like Ray Vans. I know they just looked. They just looked so cool. Yeah, <laughs> fantastically suntanned. <laughs> uh, I could see it. I could see it. Um, all right. How about you for for controversy? Yeah. Uh, controversy. I, I honestly don't know how I found this this fun fact of controversy here, but basically, um, a, a guy. I, I, it caught my eye. I, I read this and I'm like, well, something's something's off. Uh, Dutchman in in the Holland Greece game, ma- the Holland Greece match on June 11, 1980. Dutchman Dirk Naniga of uh, Naniga had to explain 27 times to journalists the, the, the circumstances of his penalty call. So I'm like, that's that seems off. I, I did a little research on this guy, and he so he's got this crazy cool article, right? Um, that's titled "Florist." Battering Ram and Late Bloomer, how Dick Naninga rose to score in a World Cup final. I'll put it in the notes um, here, and it's, it's on a site called These Football Times. Um, but basically, this dude uh, goes from a part-time, being a part-time fo- footballer and, fo- and full-time worker on construction sites as well as florist. This dude became like a, a star at, at the national level. Uh, like I don't know of many stories like that where it's like this guy was just like trimming flowers one you know one month and the next month he's rising up against argentina in the final um 78 final so anyway he's he's you know this article i'll tease it a little bit by, by reading one small excerpt um as a bright orange flame of total football burned so brightly before consuming itself in the 1974 world cup final and falling to cruel defeat Back in Kirkrade, a Dutch town among, along the German border, an amateur footballer watched on television. Little did he know that four years later, donned in the famous colors of his country, he would score the goal that gave Netherlands renewed hope that they could later rest the ghost of the, the numbing defeat to his German neighbors. In four years, Dick Naninga would go from part-time footballer and full-time worker on construction sites as well as florist to being the robust, muscular embodiment of an artisan iconoclast among the squad of Dutch artists. The man who gave hope of redemption to his country, right? Crazy cool dude. I'm like, wow, like this is this is gonna be some story uh, to hear about like his controversy and why he had to explain himself so many times. Basically, the the short story is he became the first substitute player to be sent off uh, seven minutes after coming on. He comes on, he goes on the field seven minutes late. He gets sent off against West Germany. He and Bernd Holzenbein clashed as the Dutch took a free kick and Aninga was shown the yellow card. He was then reported to have laughed at the referee's decision and then shortly after, uh, he was ordered off. So I, I couldn't find this anywhere on YouTube. I couldn't. I, I think I got to like do a little bit more digging in terms of like just watching the whole game over again. But I'm, I'm imagining the scenes of a guy getting yellow, laughing at, at a referee and then getting sent off. Like that's just... 
so far and away like what I read about him in that really cool article. Um, so yeah, controversy, a little bit of I don't know, uh, like crazy you know World Cup drama, Euro Cup drama. That was against um, Greece. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. It's not in my. Um, as I was looking through cards, that that game doesn't his red card doesn't show up in my uh, on Flash Score. Anyways, because I was like, oh, there's someone did get kicked out of a game, and I didn't notice it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So just a a guy who made his way up through the ranks and found his, himself playing in the Euros. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's uh, plow through some some other stuff here. So we've got just quickly club storylines. Uh, the only kind of big one for me was again, the England squad just loaded with club success. They, they showed up with 19, 19 European cup winner medals between their, their club. Um, basically because Liverpool and Nottingham forest had been so successful in the, in the late seventies and in 1980 uh, with, you know, Kevin Keegan having a, a boatload of those, but just a, a, a really good, good squad as far as club success and why people thought they were going to possibly roll through the events. How about you? Uh, yeah, I just had the, the, the scandal being a, a storyline that, that um, maybe again, just set the, set the tone for the tournament. Um, didn't get into the, the other national teams. Yeah. Yeah, that Italian scandal just hovering over. Typically, we get into PK disasters. There really, there's no PKs in a tournament when you've got group stages and ties are allowed, and there's no, uh, there's only one one final uh, game that's an elimination. And we talked about the the nine eight third place PK, where sixteen straight or seventeen straight penalty kicks were made. Um, so then, just through some players and managers, and give some shout outs to some. Rising stars, some guys who maybe clinched a legacy, and uh, and then we'll wrap this up. So, rising stars, you have you have two on here. Yeah, one I who's not to... even European. Typical, typical of uh, just. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, give me an excuse to talk about him. I'll, I'll find I'll find one. Um, I think it's pretty cool here to, to kind of kind of like timestamp the tournament a little bit more for for fans. And for me, this was like I guess the first tournament that did provide a, a, a tangible timestamp. Um, 19-year-old Maradona features in a friendly, uh, an England friendly, um, ahead of the, the 1980 European Cup um, championships. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. Like young, kid, young kid growing up, and he's this hot talent. Um, and it, it shows, it's an article somewhere in the game, about the game, uh, him playing as England, and he makes this, like, mazy run that he'll soon later, you know, become famous for. Against him, he didn't score, but he goes on this dribbling run, and the entire England team is like, "Holy shit, this is this is this guy's gonna be a problem in the, in the coming years." I've got the quote here. Yeah, uh, he made this great run, similar to that second goal against England in Mexico '86. Recalls Forest striker Gary Birtles, who made his England debut as a late substitute. Quote: On this occasion, he put it into the side netting, but we were all looking at each other on the bench, having never seen anything like it. You could see this guy was going to be a massive talent. So that's a, that's a 19-year-old Maradona um, impressing a bunch of Brits six years before he breaks their hearts with uh, one of the greatest goals of all time and one of the most famous goals of all time. 
And those are two different goals that I'm talking about. If you know, you know, right. um, the hand of God and, and his swerving run through the defense was phenomenal. Um, and then you've also got Lothar Mateus here as a 19 year old. Yeah. Again, timestamp. Um, for me, I, I didn't realize his, his legacy started so close to, um, other names that I, that I have in this pantheon of, of greats. Um, he isn't, he, he isn't, he is in that pantheon. And I just thought for me, it was, it was all kind of hard to pinpoint where he was. Um, and this was just, yeah, he's 19 at the 18, 1980 Euro European championship. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. He's, um, he played, I, I, I was about to say, I think I saw him play. I did. I saw him play for Germany in the 1994 world cup quarterfinals, um, in person that I went to the Germany, Bulgaria quarterfinal when Bulgaria beat, beat Germany, which was, um, which was crazy with yeah, he's like, up in the net, he- up in, uh, the Meadowlands. For me, he's like a guy that like is forever or permanently like age twenty nine or thirty. Like it, like in my mind when I imagine him play, I, I can't I can't imagine him as a young nineteen year old guy. I, I imagine him as this like grizzly vet that's just like always the same age. Well, it's so funny, yeah. And I'm looking at his picture right now, and he's he's sixty sixty one sixty years old, and he looks like he could still play. He's just still the same same looking guy. Just looks like he's in great shape. Um, you could go bop the ball around in the midfield for, for 45 minutes. Um, all right. Legacy clinchers. So just any guys or even teams that maybe clinched a legacy. I, I found one that I was kind of off the beaten path. as we talked about, not a lot of, um, star power in this, in this tournament, but Rainer Bonhoff was a West German player. He played in the 72, the 76 and the 80 Euro finals. Um, he has three medals. He's won two championship medals and one runner-up medal. Um, according to Wikipedia, he is the only person to hold three medals uh, from the Euros, which I thought was kind of a, a cool little guy I'd never heard of before. Played in the midfield. He was also a very impactful player in the 82 World Cup winning squad. Um, I mean, the run of West Germany is another kind of legacy clincher for me. They won the Euros in 70 and 72. They lost in the finals in 76. They won again in 80. Um, and then they won the World Cup in 82 and the World Cup in 90. And they went to the World Cup final in 86 and lost to Maradona's Argentina. So they they basically spent from 72 to 90 playing in six major uh, kind of world football national finals, which is um, an astounding, astounding record and an astounding run. So they're in the middle of it right now in the eighties, but as far as their Euro legacy, that was a pretty impressive run. And I think they're the only club. They're only, they're the only, um, the only team to reach three straight Euro finals. So another little clincher. What do you have? Um, yeah, just like for me, uh, like I said before, um, this tournament was about as much about the, the players playing as the players not playing in the, in, in the Euros, um, some names just really quickly of people that that, that didn't feature, um, but these names kind of again help us paint the picture of what was going on in the in the soccer world at, at this time. Um, Liam Brady from the Republic of Ireland, um, who moved to Juventus uh, the summer of, of the Euro, 
Uh, Liverpool Scottish duo Kenny Dalglish and Graham Souness were players that that were not were not playing. Francis Platini was not playing. Um, so like for me again, like these names are like, oh okay, I I I know, you know, I know who who these players are, um, and it's showing us kind of you know, um, just more context of, of what was going on and what is, what is to come in the next few years. Uh, I know that. You know, these names were great and, and legends. You know, Doug Leach and, and Graham Sunis are, are revered at, at Anfield, even after um, some, you know, some uh, mishaps at, at the managerial level for, for Doug Leach. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, just uh, um, something that, you know, is more like kind of foreshadowing of, of what's to come as opposed to what was what was cemented or established in that moment. Yeah, for sure. There's there's um there's a lot of background work going on, and, and a lot of guys who are going to burst onto the scene in the '80s, um, for sure. Uh, blown opportunities. I think you and I kind of have the same. Uh, the Eng- England again taking over this podcast a little bit. Um, they they did in my mind they that they were they were the they were the ones who should have won it or had, should have at least made the final, and. The one piece that I thought was interesting about how Greenwood managed his team was he rotated his goalie. So you mentioned Peter Shilton earlier. Shilton only played every other match. Just Greenwood just decided I'm going to have a different goalie for each match, which is um, he. They people believe he was too nice. He played 19 of his 22 players mm-hmm. over the course of three matches, which is a whole lot of rotation um, and not giving guys a chance to kind of settle in and play with each other. So. England's my blown opportunity. I think Greenwood is probably to blame for some of it, and just maybe so. So are the heightened England expectations that always seem to join them when they show up at an event. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. I, I just have a, a, a news clipping here of Kevin Keegan, uh, classic, <laughs> classic. Um, you know, one finger in the air, uh, celebration of the time, you know, like no one, no one was doing the, like the, what's the, you know, just the different dances anymore. Um, uh, at the corner flag, it's just kind of running around your finger in the air, you know, after scoring a goal. Um, but you know, like zooming into it, it's just, it's just pretty much, um, a clipping of saying like, we're going to win it. We've got all the, all the, all the tools that we need to, you know, win this tournament, and it's a theme that kind of plays itself out again and again with some other um, rosters as we get into the later or more modern tournaments. Yeah. So, yeah. And 1980 isn't that far from 66. I, I you know, it's only 14 years later, um, and I think there there was still they were still running on a little bit of that that energy from winning a World Cup a decade and a half earlier, as well. And I think they saw themselves as this is their next kind of batch of this group watched that happen. You know, they watched Bobby Jones and Jeff Hurst and all those guys win. And uh, I think they thought that they were going to, going to do the same thing at least at some point in the eighties, uh, who made some cash. I've got, I've got Jean Marie Pfaff, who is the Belgian goalie who had obviously a f- went to the finals and signed with Bayern following the tournament. So, you know, there's always a couple guys, or at least one guy, who has a great tournament and goes in and signs a nice contract with a with a big club. And John Marie Pfaff was was that fellow in 1980. And then you have a funny note about him. Yeah, so I guess we picked pick the same guy at different times of his life uh, for for earning money. <laughs> um, 
this dude, Jean-Marie Pfaff, uh, has a TV show now um, that airs in Belgium. It's, it just, it's a TV show that follows him and his family, and it's called The Pfaffs. Um, like, as, that's it. It's just, like, this guy is, like, I, and look at his, his Wikipedia page. Um, it's like a guy that, it, like, belongs in, like, some, you know, some beach town in Massachusetts. Um, North Shore or the Cape? What are we talking about here? Uh, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> See like a Marblehead um, guy or <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. Like I, I, could, I could see Situate for sure. Okay. Like, you know, Limit. I don't know. Like it was just different places. Um, but yeah, uh, apparently this guy was named by Pele as the, one of the top 125 greatest living footballers in Washington, yeah. which is like I don't know. Take it with a grain of salt, depending on who you are. Because like Pele, Pele's got some things where it's just like I, he's gonna just say things. Yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, how much how much this is valid. But I mean, yeah, really interesting uh, name to come up. I, I would never have thought I'd be talking about a guy named um, like a guy with a TV show. Yeah, yeah. He's I, I from what I the limited stuff I read about him, he was quite the character as a goalie. And um, there's a picture of him like kind of taps lightly tapping a, an opponent on the cheek um on his i think maybe it's on his wikipedia or an article i was i was reading but just to kind of a little bit of a character um all right last last topic here trading cards so this is just you know what's a or i i also put a, a nft as a um you know for the kids out there so you know a player or a you know players who maybe just stamped a little bit of of a maybe not a legacy but just a moment in time or something that just holds up um through you know till till 2021 and you've got a you've got a list of guys here i've got one do you want to give your give your list of guys who might yeah. be on a on a trading card about the 1980 euros yeah, bullet point style. Um, again, these are for me. These were all more like from the the perspective of timestamps and giving us a better idea of what was going on and what's to come. Um, believe it or not, for me, like Vicente Del Bosque, the famous Spain manager who um, goes on to win Euros and a World Cup, um, you know, regarded as one of the best national team managers ever, um, was playing in this tournament, which is crazy because. He's always a guy that, like, I think of him, he's forever 70 years old. <laughs> yeah. Born 70 years old and, you know, was 70 for 70 years. Yeah. Sam Allardyce is another one like that. Yeah. You know, like, these guys who just are timeless and like, you just, like, I don't know how you were ever a different age. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Del Bosque, uh, big time name to come up, who's still playing. Playing in there was, um, playing in the qualifiers was Andy Gray. Uh, Andy Gray's, you know, famous announcer, uh, Glenn Hoddle, who we talked about at, at Spurs and, and um, our English pods. And I mean, Andy Gray, we talked about too. He's a he was a he was on those Everton teams. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Thank you for that. Um, Dino Zoff, who I know came up. I, there's no way a guy named Dino Zoff didn't come up on our pod. Uh, looking at his like at his uh, Wikipedia. He looks like some kind of Bond character. I can't tell if he's like a, a good guy or a bad guy in a Bond movie. Um, but like really just like so Italian. Um, anyway, yeah, he's a keeper. Um, 
like it's like it's like it's just a, a great trading card. Uh, if you had his picture right here out on a trading card, it'd be worth at least like ten grand. He he played for Juventus for yeah. eleven years, so we might have talked about him. He he might have come up when we when we did our no. podcast on them. Three hundred thirty caps for Juventus. I think he came up in our, in our Napoli podcast because he he might have been one of the legends. Oh, he did. He played for Napoli too for for five years. So yeah, Napoli to Juventus in uh, from sixty seven right. to eighty three. Um. Yeah. So, really quickly, he's greatest, great, one of the greatest goalkeepers in the twentieth century. Third greatest behind uh, Lev Yashin and Gordon Banks. So he's he's a name. Um. Charles Corver, the referee that uh, didn't call a foul for a guy who was unconscious and lost teeth and damaged his vertebrae. Uh, great. That'd be a great training card to have. Here's, here's a guy that doesn't believe in fouls. Um. Carl Heinz Rummenigge. Uh, the I call him Mr. Bayern. He's uh, the face of Bayern Munich, um, big time guy. I, I didn't again think he'd be a name that would come up as a player. Um, I always knew he played, but um, you know, kind of now being able to put this puzzle piece together of, of where we are in, in the timeline. Um, Faf, the the Belgian TV guy, and then Peter Shilton. Um, watching some some highlights and games, you hear his name and think, like, oh yeah, wow, like you know, Peter Shilton is. It's not that long ago. Yeah, was uh, he at Crystal Palace? Did he play for Crystal Palace? Or was he a was he a Liverpool guy? He came up on our pod though. Yeah, we've talked about him before. Let's see here. So many, so many teams. West Ham, he played for. Definitely West. We probably West West Ham. Uh, West Ham. He also played for Southampton and Leicester City. So we might have talked about him on any of those English pods we did. Yeah, he's a he's a star for sure. So my my trading card, I just I picked out one. I kind of picked out a moment, maybe the the highlight of the tournament. Every every tournament has kind of that that flashpoint. Um, and I think Horst Hrubesch, aka Koftball, oh, I'm gonna butcher this one, Ungshur, or the heading monster who scored both goals in the in the final for West Germany. Um, he was a not, he 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 shouldn't even been on the team. I guess the guy he replaced had just broken his leg. Uh, he was considered a one-trick pony, but he could head the ball. He was a big guy, and uh, he managed to score the winner with two minutes left. And for me, that's kind of like the that flashpoint. That's a trading card uh, that you would want in your pack uh, if you were flipping through 1980. Um, so before we finish euro uefa.com does a nice job of like just five top facts from 1980 that i'll read through and then we can kind of then we can wrap up does that sound good yeah all right so the top five facts about the 1980 euro uh carl heinz how did you pronounce his last name ruminage ruminage carl heinz ruminage is that how we're pronouncing it we're not sure how he pronounces it yeah uh so he won the ball and door in 1980 uh, for his efforts after West Germany beat Belgium 2-1 in the final. And his teammate, Bernd Schuster, finished as runner-up. Uh, another fact here, West Germany's defeat, or West Germany's feat of reaching three consecutive UEFA European Champion Finals uh, remains unmatched. They also did the same thing in the World Cup between 82 and 90, which I mentioned earlier. Um, in the, and then another one is the 17 successful penalty kicks. Uh, Greece got to their first major final in 1980, and it took them 24 years to uh, reappear at a Euro final 
tournament, and that was when they won in 2004. So Greece went from 80 to 2004, never being in the Euros again, and then they showed up and won in 04. Um, and a master of headed goals with Hamburg, Horst uh, Hubrich was seen as a one-trick pony by some, and he only made it to the team because Schalke's Klaus Fischer had broken his leg. So we always like sliding doors on this podcast, and that is that is certainly a sliding door. Um, Tournament-winning goal scorer ends up on the team because someone else had a, had an injury that opened the door. So that's uh, that's the, those are my facts. That's a whole lot of 1980. What a what a treasure trove of information. So much stuff going on. Yeah, the the toddler is alive. The toddler is in kindergarten now. Yep. He's walking, talking, making a mess, playing with Legos. And uh, 1984 will be next. And we'll just kind of pick our way through through these tournaments. Um, any last thoughts on 1980, Boff? No, no. <laughs> it's a lot of thoughts already. Yeah. It was great. Um, so thanks for listening. If you did not listen to the first one, I recommend going back and listening to the one that covers the first five just to get a, a flavor of where this tournament started. And, and uh, we will be back soon with our 1984 euros and i can't i don't even know where they were hosted but we will we'll see you all then thanks for listening thanks boss thank you